of knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 435. Jason Lingren is with me, and with us joining us today is James and Elise from Family Fungi. The last episode, where I think it was just James, was 386. You can look it up. We're going to cover some interesting ideas here today. And the reason they're interesting is because they're critically important to be in this realm, what it means to be here, the things that we have no choice that we will do. Uh, we're going to cover coming in the front door, going out the back door, which is probably a terrible way of explaining birth and death. There are plenty of other examples in older cultures where these things were carefully thought through by new parents and by the older who are about to exit this realm or whatever the proper way to say that would be. Um, we are going to use some examples. And I think the way this is going to shake out is we're going to do the idea of birth keepers and hour one, and then the death process and things that we have kind of winnowed away that we think are important to think about. Uh, most of us in this realm, when we get a death in the family, or when maybe we come to our deaths, we act like it's this thing that we need to keep far away from ourselves. There are other cultures who go about it exactly the opposite way. They meditate about their death. They think about it. They do the best they can. And in many examples, some that we will cite, the idea is that they want to spiritually move on from here. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And a very hot good morning. All right. Well, um, let's just jump in. Welcome, James and Elise. Hello. Hey, thank you so much, Crow. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us back. Yeah, my pleasure. So what we're going to do, well, before we start, why don't you go ahead and lay down where people can find you and your work and just describe what the mainstay is. So we grow mushrooms. You can find us at familyfungi.net and also familyfungi on Instagram. And we also have a little homestead page where I mostly post and that's the outpost homestead. So that's on Instagram as well. Okay. Do you guys want to give out an email or do you want to not do that in hour one? Yeah, we'll say that for hour two. Yeah, you can get overwhelmed. So we're going to jump in here. There's ideas that maybe a lot of people haven't heard about the idea of a birth keeper. Uh, the opening bullets are going to try to frame in the minds of everybody listening the difference between maybe a doula and a birth, birth keeper. So let's jump in. What is a birth keeper? So in my eye, a birth keeper is someone is a woman that keeps the spirit of birth alive. She is someone that holds true what women go through when they're pregnant and postpartum and then during the, um, the ceremony of actually giving birth. A doula comes from the Greek word doulo or doulios, which means a slave woman. And so recently, I believe it was... Um, Yolanda Norris Clark from the Free Birth Society that coined the term birth keeper rather than a doula. And so some people, whenever they hire a doula, it is just a woman that comes to their birth, whether it be at a hospital or at home, and just gives support, really. So that would be getting them water, doing hip compressions, helping the husband in any way possible, they really just give the mother an extra set of hands. So the difference between a doula and a midwife would be a midwife is someone that is medically trained, similar to a doctor, to watch a woman as she births and make sure nothing's going wrong or uh, they're, they're just the medical attention. Rather, a doula is someone that has no medical training at all. They're just there to help the woman. And I feel like a step 
above that, not above really, but uh, a different way of looking at birth is a birth keeper. So that could be someone that's there for you throughout your whole pregnancy, um, as well as the birth. And then also postpartum because birth is not just the moment when you go into labor as a woman, the whole process of being pregnant and then the birth and then the postpartum, that's all the ceremony that encompasses birth. A lot of the times people just think it's active labor pushing and then boom, you're done. You're not pregnant. You're not giving birth. You got a baby. There you go. And that's not really what the spirit of a birth keeper is. The spirit of a birth keeper is someone that's there for the woman, um, reminding her and being another pillar in her life that's, you're going through a ceremony. You're going through something so sacred because women have um, initiations built into their DNA. They get their first bleed. They're a woman. Then they go through the maiden portion of themselves and then they get to be a mother. So their first birth. And then even subsequent births after that, you're constantly transforming in this beautiful ceremony that is motherhood. And then once again, menopause, you transition into the crone. And so as a woman, your life is wholly sacred. Yeah. So a birth keeper just reminds women of that, reminds them that they are this holy vessel within this life. You know, it occurred to me with all the work I've done around the sky clock and calendars, as many know, a month used to be called a month. And I've given examples of how even the Catholic Church, which is all about solar, calendars and counting can't get Easter placed without the moon. So they get a quasi calendar, uh, which I think is still kept alive in Hebrew traditions called loony solar or solar lunar. But my point here is as I was looking at the moon for all those years, there were so many traditions that held the life cycle of particularly women close to the moon, whether we're talking about the menses or even the stage of life as you've just described it. But I later learned that men can be broken down in the same way, according to the moon. And it had occurred to me, and this is just a thought, I don't know it to be fact, that we have seen so much to remove women from the birthing that occurs in the West. And maybe the witch trials were a portion of that. And we know what Rockefeller Medicine did to try to make it a clinical event and remove the idea of women there helping with the birth or delivering the birth, that the removal of the moon uh, from our calendrical thinking was another way to further separate the natural processes of the life of a living man or a woman from the reality that's around us. To get to the point, so a birth keeper is maybe a modern updating of the idea of a doula. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. Yeah. Just a more refined, a different way of thinking about it. So uh, is it common? Have people commonly been having birth keepers or is it so new that there would be one focal point right now to learn more about it? I think that it is not new, really, but I think it's coming more to the forefront of women's minds, especially with what's happened the past few years and women feeling more uncomfortable in a hospital. But I really first heard it from the Free Birth Society, and this is a group of women that created a pretty much a private members association that has birth keepers that you can contact in your community to be, it's mostly for unassisted births. 
So births at at home, not in the medical system, not not even a midwife there. It's pretty much just trusting yourself. And so you can get a birth keeper, you can hire a birth keeper to come to your birth just really to support. You don't want anything medical. You don't want someone coming in trying to assess you or uh, use really much of their thinking mind at all. You just want someone there really just to help you out and remind you that you're okay. Because sometimes in birth, I feel like there is, so you have the industrial hospital births and then you have a birth maybe stewarded by a birth keeper or just you and your family. And in the hospital system, I feel like things are more stepwise fashion. While you were getting into some of the clinical ideas, and I know where you're about to go and I can give the example, we just did an interview with a couple that left London to go off grid, having one standing up against blocking their spirit, uh, which the job of the husband was demanded. Uh, They took it all the way. They got a settlement. The settlement moved them. But the point I would make is at one point we were talking about the inheritance of the child or what's commonly called the afterbirth or maybe the, the cord, the placenta and the call. And when they demanded it back in that clinical setting that you were starting to describe, they were told, well, we can't do that. We don't even have a release form. And that kind of draws the picture where you're going, what do you mean a release form? At what point did my child's inheritance somehow become your property for you to release back to us? And that kind of felt like where you were going there. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely wild that that happened. Whenever we were pregnant with our first, I went to, we went to the hospital. And after maybe three or four visits there, I started crying. And the woman was like, oh, you're just pregnant. And I was like, no, I don't want to be here. And she was a tad shocked. And I was just like, yeah, no, we don't need this. Women don't need this at all. Because in a hospital, what you have is procedure. That is it. You have individualized consciousness and personalities that care about the woman and help, but ultimately they're just doing their job. And you get routine ultrasounds, routine checkups, routine vaginal exams. Um, You get all of these things that completely interfere with the woman's intuition. Because what does an ultrasound do? It shows you your baby. Oh, look, your baby's good, but oh, the, the weight might be a little low or the weight might be too high. Maybe your baby's growing too fast. And it just puts all of these doubts inside the mother and something like an ultrasound only shows you that moment in time. Everything could change when you go home. Same thing with all the exams that they do. It's only that particular moment, which I think is why they want, it's so uh, invasive what they do to a woman in a hospital setting. And uh, my first interaction with the hospital was uh, with birth was actually through my sister. That's a NICU nurse. And whenever I, I asked her why they cut the cord, why did they cut the cord so soon? She said, oh, well, because if you don't cut the cord, then the baby's not going to have the strength to breathe. And that, uh, I, I knew nothing about birth at the time. And I was like, wait, won't have the strength to breathe. That makes absolutely no sense. And it, 
the explanation was that it shocks the child into breathing. So rather than a smooth transition into this place, you immediately get the cord cut and the baby has to start doing something. And if the baby doesn't breathe right away or isn't crying right away, then that means that something must be wrong. You know, I I have a little thing I can add here that I found out a couple of weeks ago talking to a very smart man. There were a set of Germans back in the day when uh, it was a time of supposed history when doing things to people called experiments was acceptable by certain civilizations within Europe. They would, they would look for a healthy birth and a healthy placenta. They would cut it right away. Then they would put an incision in an individual right above the pubic mons or down below the belly button above the genital. They would take the placenta, insert it, and sew it shut so it heals up. And it would take, I forget, longer than I thought for that to be basically sucked dry by the body, but it was being used as a way to prolong life. And I think that underscores kind of the importance of what we're talking about. So many times we've covered how people who have chosen to do home birthing and other things, almost to a person, I have heard these people say, and I'm not giving medical advice, I'm recounting what others have told me they chose to do. They would say things like, we will not cut the cord until it quits pulsating. I heard one couple describe it recently as when it stops pumping or pulsating, and then the cord begins to look white. And in that conversation, they brought up exactly what you just said. (laughs) They said, what would you rather have? The cord cut and then the baby smacked into this realm to breathe or wait because the baby is breathing through the placenta still is the way they described it. But to lay all that down, kind of to put the importance of what is the placenta about? How should it be treated? I just wanted to add that in. If it's true, what I heard that they were using it to prolong life by actually surgically inserting it into people, that's a heck of a thing. Yeah. And so the placenta, if it has such a a beautiful place in birth with the child, because if you know you birth your baby and then for some reason the baby stops breathing and the child is still connected to the placenta, the placenta will then start working again. It will uh, give the baby oxygen and blood and cycle it through until the baby comes to and chooses to incarnate into this realm and be here. And so in my birth training, I went through the Matrona program, which is a, a program led by a woman, Wapio, and it was holy ceremonial. She went through the clinical stages, um, the cardinal movements of birth, what happens to a woman, things that you would learn in a regular doula training. But what she went in depth in was the spiritual nature of birth and how a woman left undisturbed can do pretty much anything. And this is related back to in the hospital setting, because in the hospital, all they do is run tests and tell, they tell you about your baby. They don't say, hey, why don't you sit and meditate with your child for a while and see what they need? Why don't you sit and ask yourself questions and ask your baby questions and figure out what's going on? Can you picture your baby? Can you figure out how he's laying in your tummy? Can you do this? it completely disconnects a woman from her innate intuition and what 
and ultimately the relationship that she has with her child. And it was interesting because in my training, uh, Wapio mentioned that she used to take the women that she was training for birth keepers down to Peru to do ayahuasca. And she was explaining that the places of stillness and oneness and ultimately being with the creator that you can glean or get to on these plant medicines is the same place that you go in birth, which is also the same place that you reach in death. And I found that very interesting because at the time I was just a young hippie that was very curious about these plant medicines and had partaken in ceremony before, but I hadn't yet connected it to the birth realm. And then going through, and I had also became a certified yoga teacher prior to this and then a Reiki. And so taking this training, this program allowed me to integrate that together into the spirit of a birth keeper, into being that space for women because you're just a witness. Women don't need any intervention or anyone to tell them what to do. Or if a woman does need something in the vortex of birth, it's, it's a whole different realm that you reach when you're tuned into that space. If a woman truly needs something, then everyone around her will know what she needs. It's, it's very beautiful, really. And I realized this my first birth as a birth keeper. I had done some births in a hospital and I realized that that was not at all the way to go because it put entirely too much stress on myself and in turn putting stress on the woman birthing and then just making everyone uncomfortable because when you go into a hospital, you are on guard the whole time. Uh, I've never been to a hospital birth where someone respected, can you please just leave us alone for five minutes? Can, no, can you please leave us alone? It's like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they go get another nurse or the doctor comes and talks to you if the doctor's there. And I realized that I cannot do hospital births. I cannot be a birth keeper for a woman that is teetering on what she truly wants, because to give birth, you have to be very steadfast and pointed with your mind. If you, yes, doubts come up and fears come up, but if, oh, maybe I should go in because I don't know what's really going on with me. It's like, okay, well, you, you really have no idea how to birth then because then you won't be listening to yourself. You'll be listening to all the other voices inside of your head. Um, besides the one that truly matters. And so the first birth as a birth keeper was a home birth for one of my very dear friends. And she did have a midwife, but the midwife didn't even get there until the baby was pretty much out. And I cleaned her bathtub. I did hip compressions. Her back was hurting. So I did that for her. And then we started as labor progressed and as she got higher and higher, really as um, she was breathing with herself within the contractions, I ended up switching roles with her husband. Her husband started doing any all the other auxiliary things that she needed, whether it be hip compressions or water or food. And I 
held her hands and stared in her eyes for about three hours. And that was all that we did. It was an open-eyed meditation with the infinite. And that allowed me to see truly how deep and beautiful birth goes and how women reach a space within themselves that really nothing can phase them. And, and, and this gets into the idea of an ecstatic birth because I, I don't know if not many women know about ecstatic births or they just don't look into birth a lot because I feel like it's like, oh, you go to the hospital and the hospital takes care of you and you get your ultrasounds, but there's so much more to that part of yourself. Yeah. And that, that showed me a lot for my first birth because I was maybe four or five months pregnant with our first child whenever I witnessed that beautiful emergence of a child. You know, it, it occurs to me as you're describing the kind of clinical things, and in my mind, uh, I'm asking, so is, is what I'm hearing here even possible under the clinical setting? And since I'm a man and I cannot even deign to imagine what the birth is like, what I notice about it is a thing that did happen to me. I don't know whether I was in my 30s or 40s, and I started thinking to myself, am I grown up? Am I grown up now? Do I feel like I'm grown up? Later, I look back and I said, how could it possibly be that a man in upper 30s or younger 40s could even have that thought in their mind? And I started to take it apart. But what you're describing in that clinical side of things is, is a similar thing. It's almost like you're removing the adultness. An adult, you know, I know people don't like the word, so I'm, I'm referring to a grown-up woman. That's autonomous to be an adult or to be grown. You don't need a mommy or a daddy. Um, back in the day, people could do so many things because they knew it was on them. But in that situation, again, now there's the professional. I'm not in charge here anymore. It's almost like converting adults to be children for that part of the, you know, the, the experience. Yeah, you give up your sovereignty. You're telling someone else that they know more about you than you do. What doctor delivered your baby? That's what they say. What doctor delivered your baby? <laughs> you, you, you delivered your baby. I'm like, nobody <laughs> delivered my baby. <laughs> I, did, I did this. And it's so funny. Uh, I heard, the, I listened to the podcast that you did with Grounded Extracts and Najla speaking about her birth. And it, there's a sense of I don't really want to use the word pride, but strength and camaraderie in womanhood and sisterhood whenever you hear of another woman giving birth in sovereignty uh, because it, it reaches a strength, a depth inside. And, I, and that is what prepares you for motherhood. It's bravery. That's what I've taken away from so many of these things. I, I, I question myself, could I be that brave? Uh, these people saying, I'm doing it this at home. I'm doing it by myself. Uh, and they've, it's, it's just, it's more than bravery. It's this idea that I know what I'm doing here. I'm starting here. I know where the light is at the end of this experience and I'm going straight for it. But there is an element of extreme bravery in what I've picked up um, from some of the, the birthing tales. By the way, this other couple that uh, by the time this comes out, people have heard it. They did 50-50 on their first birth. Part of it was involved with the hospital, and then they broke away. But the hospital started openly referring to the baby as the product. No. Yeah, it, blow, it blows your mind. 
how how the creep of of what's acceptable or or what you know it's just i don't i don't comprehend how the people in that professional position can can drift to the point where you're talking a brand new life and referring to it as a product it's it's almost unconscionable well they were referring to a baby that had passed away are you sure about that jason because what i got was this was the pre-birth interaction and that am i wrong here jason I thought that was the one she she didn't carry to term. Okay, so maybe I am wrong, but what the way but still, I recollect it, <laughs> that's not the point. It's still so appalling. Even, even well, in- yeah, it's it's bad enough, right? But I, I was of a mind that they were referring to the life that was about to be born, not the one just like. Either way, it's unconscionable. Yeah, and one thing that they do in the hospital, and that I view as the word, I call it a psychological operation that they do on women, is say a happy, healthy baby. That's a term you hear throughout birth. Well, you just want a happy, healthy baby, right? You should do, because what if? What if you don't get an ultrasound and then something's really, really wrong with your child and they come out and have no arm? It's, it's things like that that they do to women. Or if you don't get this exam, what if a story, a doctor told someone that I know they had an incompetent uterus? Uh. And that was a term I had not heard ever my whole life. <laughs> Happy, healthy baby equals bippity boppity boo. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. And so focus, focus. it's always focused on happy, healthy baby rather than the mother. The mother is the vessel for the quote unquote, happy, healthy baby. And so taking care of the mother, making sure the mother has all the nutrients and love and pampering that she I want to say deserves during this time in her life um, so that she can go and settle into the ceremony that is being pregnant. So like I, like I said earlier, a lot of people view birth as just while you're in active labor, that's it. But I view it as the whole term of from conception to uh, past postpartum, really, that's the whole That's the whole ceremony right there, because throughout pregnancy, you're getting these trials of testing you really, whether it be your mind, your body, things are happening in your body that have never, ever happened before. Even if you've already been pregnant, every child's different. Every pregnancy is different. You grow different. You might have, you might need different things. So a lot of people say that, oh, what are you craving when you're pregnant? That's really just what vitamins and minerals do you need? You craving crazy things? It's like, I don't know, or vinegar. That's, I feel like that's important for your body. So I want to, I want to ask you a couple questions because I want to lay down some interesting ideas about what I refer to as the inheritance now. So, you know, the cord, the placenta and the call, when you gave birth, what did you opt to do with the inheritance of the child? So I, with our first baby, it's actually kind of a sad story. I'm laughing, but so I had both my babies at home. Our first child, Ja, I had a midwife. And then our second child, Emmanuel, I, it was just James and I. Wow. And so with Ja, I gave, it was, it was, 
such a whirlwind giving birth. It's actually so much fun. And that's what I tell women is have fun with it. So I birthed the placenta and we put it in the freezer because I was like, I think I really want to plant this with a tree. And uh, I never did. It was in the freezer. I was waiting to find the land to plant it on. And then Ida came and we lost power. Oh. And so our placenta is still in the earth, but it got dumped with all of the other things that were in our freezer, which I was very sad about. But at that point, when there's rotting meat that's been in there for a week. You didn't surrender it, though. You kept claim. You kept claim. So, So even though that's a tragic story, I want to point out that it is not lost at sea. It is not claimed by no. another. It is not given a name. It is not weighed and measured. You know, you kept claim of that inheritance. Our children are extremely free. <laughs> so if you, if you had that to do all over again and, you know, barring catastrophe, what would you opt to do? Would you use like the old North folk idea of planting it under your own Idrisil tree? Would you consume it? And by the way, are there other options? What, if you could just do any way you wanted, knowing what you know now, how would you treat the inheritance? What would you do? Well, so with our second son, I still have our placenta and I'm going to defrost it and eat some of it. I think we all might supplement with some of it. Dehydrate and capsulize? Yes. Yes. Uh, And then in other traditions, so I think it is an ancient Chinese tradition, I believe. You char it, grind it into a powder and keep it for if the child feels ill or... Oh, wow. Like a talisman. Yes. And you give them a little sprinkle of it whenever they need it. Uh, If they're having conflicts with anyone else in the house, you can give their brother a little sprinkle of it. Be like, hey, just remember, we all love one another. Hmm. Conflicts are inevitable in a family. I can imagine all the people listening that hits the modern ear. So (laughs) I I think that hits the modern ear with a clang, but um, I I get where you're going. Yeah, but it's, it's a part of us. So the reason I brought all this up is because... I don't know. I, I, I had explained this to fortune the other night because we've been doing these birth episodes and the inheritance has become a real focal point of me because I know what is done with it now to try to keep control of everybody and extinguish rights in a, in a clever way. So check this out. When I was doing the initial research about what happens to what I'll just call the placenta, which is is all of it, by the way, in some cultures, that would be the cord, what's called the call. And by the way, I'm not going to get into this, but the call is like a little membrane over, I guess, usually the face of the baby that used to be so important. People would kill. I'm not even kidding you kill to get a hold of a baby's call. Don't ask me what they were going to do with it. Their whole body is enveloped in the veil. Right. And, you know, Kurt Kallenbach will have a lot to tell you about that being the vessel that brings you in and all these other things. But so in most of the traditions that I looked at, the placenta or the baby's inheritance was consumed. And then parts of it, again, were almost like a talisman. They were kept and it was held onto. It was almost like a birth certificate of its own proof that this event had occurred. But as I began to look into things, we got to a point where I began to realize what a put up the birthday was, because 
we're focused on this birthday like it's when we came to be, when it is not when we came to be. We came to be nine months before that, and we've forgotten all this life the creator gave us up to the birth. And so I started looking at the birthday cake. Now, get this. I'm explaining to Fortune my idea here that what actually happened over time was the consuming of the placenta was replaced by the birthday cake. So I start describing it, what, I, what I'm thinking about to him. And I, I say, I even tracked the birthday cake back to a Greek pagan thing where it's related to the moon, where you're putting a candle for each year you've been alive, then snuffing them out. When you light the candles, you turn out the lights and all its relationship to the moon. And he says, young crow, I'm so surprised that you have come across this for the simple truth that the German word for placenta, and I can't remember it, but it's basically flugenkock or something like this, basically cake, Yeah. where the German word, do you know the word? I don't know the exact word, but I know that it's cake. So even the German word for the placenta had the word cake in it, which makes me imagine, and I don't know this for sure, that maybe that was cooked into a cake that the family or somebody ate at the time. But I just wanted to add all that in um, because when I said it, he was just cracking up. He's all, how do you even come up with these things? Um, He's all, but you're not wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever you ask and you shall receive, you get the answers always. And that, it, that ties back into what I'm talking about with birth is in order to birth in sovereignty with yourself and if you want a birth keeper or a doula or even a midwife or whatever, you have to know the creator. You can't just think and believe and, oh, maybe it'll happen. However, because doubts, doubts popped up and that's okay. But you must know your strength and you must know where you came from and where you're going and the beauty of it all. I have a little quote here that says, fear is adultery with God. If you fear, then that means that you don't, you really don't trust the plan. You don't trust what's in store for you. I had, it's interesting, whenever I was pregnant with our first son, I had three separate dreams that I died after giving birth. And some of them were extremely realistic. And you just have to, because that that's the biggest thing that people say is, well, what if you die? You're having your baby at home. What if you die? What if your baby dies? And one thing that Owen Benjamin said a while ago that I always keep in my mind is your guns can't save you. Only God can save you. The hospital can't save you. Only God can save you. That is a hell of a point in this point of time that we all find ourselves now. That is well done, Owen, for saying that. That is, that is a critical point. Yeah, that's, that's true. What we're, what we're doing now is we're choosing our paths, all of us. And your idea about fear being adultery is all the more interesting to me because, and you know me, I'm always looking at the idea of reincarnation and death and all the old accounts that I can get of it. There was one example, which is very convincing and written in a way that feels like a sage put it down on paper sometime. What it says is after you pass away and you're in the darkness by yourself, if you fear, you're going to go back into the light and you're going to come back here. But if you can maintain yourself in the darkness by yourself and recognize you have the power to create, then you will go on. That's one of the examples which which I have read about, and it's all based on exactly what you just said. Are you afraid or are you not afraid? There is the fulcrum point of what happens next. 
Yeah. In the stages of labor in a clinical model, they talk about transition. And in a hospital setting, transition would be from nine to 10 centimeters. So you have early labor, which is like from one to three centimeters, and you have three to six, which is active labor, and then six to nine, which is like more active labor. You're really getting to it. And then nine to 10, which is your transition. Does it ever go beyond 10? 10 centimeters, you're fully dilated. If you're not pushing a baby out, you're having a (laughs) C-section. That's it. But in a spiritual setting, I don't see transition as that at all. I see it as when you've made up your mind that everything's perfect and your baby's coming and you're going through the waves, the energetic pulses, which can be called your contractions. And this is where you know the creator. You, you're a sovereign being. You're in your body. You're working with the baby and God and the consciousnesses that are with you at the time, whether that be your husband or a friend there helping out. And you reach this, this, ryth- this rhythmic state within yourself where you almost know what's going to happen. And this, is, this also is tied to an ecstatic birth. One way I heard Yolanda Clark from the Free Birth Society talk about an ecstatic birth is most women don't have an ecstatic birth because they always believe that they're victims. And I feel like a victim consciousness is extremely prevalent in our society. Like someone's always out to get you or I never had this because this person did it to me. And when you realize that you're always doing it to yourself, you can make up your own mind. That's whenever you realize that you're sovereign. That's when you realize who you are, which is a a beautiful, infinite being that can do this. Think of the, remember the old term, this was a love child. Yeah. The idea of that. And I thought about that at some point and I began to realize like if it truly, if I got scared really bad right now, what's in my blood would actually change. I have read claims that like when you're driving and something horrible happens all at once, but you make it through that you've just used up all the vitamin C in your body. There's claims like this, all these claims, but it's pretty clear that that state of mind physically changes measurable things about your blood. And so now when we go back to thinking about the placenta pumping, what is it? It's pumping life back in the baby, but it makes me think of the idea of a love child. The idea being there that the mother and father are truly in love. The conception is occurring within a state of love. I think that's that's what it's about, right? And the idea there is that it, that is something special. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. And even if you go through tough times in your mind while you're giving birth or how I saw birth whenever I was in the rhythmic ecstatic nature with our first child is I saw it as almost like this hallway and you have this light at the end of the hallway, this exodus where, where you're heading, but along the corridor are thousands of doors that you can go down. And you can go down the woe is me, the, oh, maybe I should go to the high. Oh, what's this? Oh, oh. And you can hype yourself up. And, and when you get, you get in that state and cortisol is being released and you don't really know what's going to happen, you tighten up and you're not allowing the spirit of birth, the rhythm of really 
I don't want to call it the universe. I don't really know what to call it. The rhythm of life working through you and with you. And you become in tune to that. You vibrate at a whole other frequency. Everyone in the room sees it and knows it and can get on that plane with you. And it is this frequency of love where everything is, everything is okay. Women left undisturbed in that special moment, going through the sacrament, the ceremony, everything that is birth, can do it. And everything is fine no matter what. It, it's a it's a deep place of peace that you ultimately reach with it. Jason, do you remember one of the earlier episodes we did about birth where we took the band live song? What's it called? Lightning Crashes. Lightning Crashes, which is as one-to-one a proof that I could show that so many people who have been exposed, exposed to the song Lightning Crashes, which must be millions and millions, have actually been summarized in a song that they know and probably sing the words to exactly what the clinical process is. As a matter of fact, I'll take a minute. Uh, The band is called Live, and it's back in an episode we did where I broke this out a little further. Let me see if I can pull it to mind. Lightning Crashes is the song. Even the title of that song, consider what's being said here. Lightning Crashes, a new mother cries. Her placenta falls to the floor. The angel opens her eyes. The confusion sets in before the doctor can even close the door. Lightning crashes. An old mother dies. Her intentions fall to the floor. The angel closes her eyes. The confusion that was her hers now belongs to the baby down the hall. Then there's the, uh, the chorus. Uh, oh, now I feel it coming back again like a rolling thunder chasing the wind. Forces from the center of the earth again. I can feel it. And then the final verse is lightning crashes and new mother cries. This moment she's been waiting for. The angel opens her eyes. Pale blue color iris presents the circle and puts the glory out to hide. To hide. And if you consider how is it that these common culture things are basically throwing in our faces all these things that we're talking about now. Uh, and it, I, I mean, to me, these words rightly point out what's happening in these hospitals. Yeah. A baby opens their eyes, confusion sets in. They're like, what are these bright lights? Who are these people touching me? I have no idea what's going on. Rather than the peace that you get when you birth at home, which is baby comes out. I don't even think our first son, he might've cried for a second might've gave out a whimper and then they're just enveloped in love of the mother and the father. When you birth like that, you give a whole, you you set your child out on a whole totally different path than a child born in the hospital setting because they know, they know peace. The first thing that they're, that they come to is just peace and love and no gloves, no nothing, just the skin of the mama and the papa. It's beautiful. Well, there's, there's a bullet point we could jump into today because I like the, the way that the title of the bullet points comes in. It's birthing in sovereignty. So what we, what Jason and I have found, and it's hard to know just because who we are, are we attracting more of these ideas? Or in fact, in the general world at large, are these ideas coming more into the mindstream? I like to think it's the latter. I like to think that people are beginning to question 
all of these kind of right robbing things that we do and this power sacrificing, you know, situations we put ourselves in. But birthing and sovereignty, this is a big idea because within the idea of a new life, actually the act of a new life, not an idea, there is the whole idea of whether that new life will be certified, will be registered. Uh, is that what you were getting into when you pointed out the sovereignty and birthing? Was that part of it? Yeah. And I was even before the podcast, I was trying to find another word for birth <laughs> because a ship gets birthed, right? A ship birthed at the dock and you get a warehouse receipt and you get all the inventory that's in it. And the dock gives you a certificate. Presto changeo. Now you're a product. So for our children, my husband, James, who is I call him super duper smart. <laughs> he actually wrote our, he called it an emergence into being. And he wrote that for our two sons. And we got them notarized. Yeah, yeah. So I'll jump in right here. So the notary is who sets the record for the court. This is one thing that uh, you get exposed to whenever you start getting into law deeper is that. The reason why you make an appearance in court is to summon the dead. They're trying to get this name attached to a physical being. And the record that the judge is reading from is from the clerk. And the clerk gets it directly through the notary. The notary is the first record maker for the court. Because if you don't have anything notarized, the clerk isn't going to put it into the records. And so we didn't submit anything into the records. We just got it as, okay, this is, this is our due diligence. That way it doesn't create any sort of joinder. It's just, okay, so you guys have recognized this. So if anything were to happen or we were to need to use this document in any way, we can show that you guys already recognized it. And what, I'm sorry, what is the document? I'm sorry, trying to keep up here. So you as a creator, you can title anything. So you title a new track, you title a new episode, you title a document. So instead of us creating or using their form of a birth certificate, we created our own form in the image that best reflected our intentions. And we called it and titled it Emergence Into Being. And all it is, is a description of the events as they took place that we as a husband and wife gave witness to the emergence of our son, Joffrey, and our son, Emmanuel. Wow. So is the naming a part of this? I believe so. And so we put his name and a description of the events, but I don't even think that we put a weight on there or anything. We weren't trying to make it so clinical. We, we wanted it to be a witnessed event, and then we signed it. And we also had the midwife that was present for Joffrey's birth. She signed it as a witness as well. Where did this document go? How was it submitted? It wasn't submitted. So like I said, we just went to the notary to have it recognized. So once the seal is clamped on there, that is recognition from the maritime side, from the materialistic side. It's, oh, okay. It's a gentle nod that if we want, we can go submit this under uh, a miscellaneous record in the parish courthouse. And then they just have it as a record of birth. That's really it. But instead, we're keeping it more like you would keep it in a family Bible. And so we're not submitting it so that it can be monetized. 
because whenever you start to form and those words forms are, are very important. Whenever you start to use their forms, then they can monetize it. Whenever you submit your forms to their jurisdiction, then they can monetize it. And so we only had the recognition of a notary who says, I am competent to say that, I, that these people came here and witnessed this event and that it is true. And that's, that's all that we, that we were looking for is, okay, so that is agreement right there because she is, acts as an agent of the state. And so as an agent, she has given the gentle nod, the agreement that that is factual. And this is one thing that escaped me for a long time when studying natural law is that as a creator, you, you are working towards that agreement with the, the adversary, the opposing system, whatever uh, strikes the best, whatever hits the mark. And so we formed this document in the image of our intentions, and then it was recognized. We did not want to submit it for use for any, for any purposes. It is the property of our children. And so if Ja seeks to get a bank account, if he wants to become part of the system, he has a foundation to stand on. And that's basically that document. So that, see, it's so tricky to even speak because our language has been just conformed into the things that we're beginning to realize we don't care so much for. So I think we need to be clear. You are not your name. How much more simple could that be? And to cement the idea that you are not your name, consider all the old cheesy movies you've seen where an Indian is supposedly born. They call him running bear because they saw a bear running on the morning he was born. So in the actuality of the natural world, what happened described when he was entering this realm. But the idea that your name is you is the corruption that has led us to where we are. How many times in popular culture do you see, let me see your ID? They're looking at you. You're right there, but let me see your ID. And by the way, if you think that's a fluke, it is not. Go back to Freud and Jung, the other. It's the id. It's ID without the periods. Right. If you see where this has come from and how it's come to be, this warped idea of you, but now think about the older way of speaking. I say to thee, thou, do you see what's happened to the language? Back in those days, thee and thou was recognizing that you are not your name, if you want to look at it in that way. So basically what you've done, and I hate to use the word ID, but when the child has to show authority, some kind of thing that would be called ID, it will be that document, right? Right. And so the way that I phrase that, the, the terminology that I choose to use is a foundational document. And so you can think of that in a metaphorical sense, like uh, masonry speaks about a good foundation inside of your being to make alchemical transmutation. Like you have to also have as above, so below, you have to have that as within, so without. So the so without for our son is this, it's a piece of paper. It's it really has no weight or bearing on who he is as a being. But if he chooses to use that in this material world, then we can counsel him on how best to use that. But it doesn't give him identity. He's not someone else again. He is who he is forever. (laughs) I am that I am. You know, it's almost like walking through life saying, yo, soy. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, at some point, this opens up the door. And this is why this is a big deal. People listen to a podcast and then they say, well, my kid's never getting a certificate. You better think your way through what you are doing here. This is not a thing to be taken lightly. 
at the point that your new life and your family wants to go to Canada, <laughs> which I'm not sure why we'd want to do that right now, uh, a passport becomes involved. So that document that you created as the creator becomes the basis for a passport if you chose to do that. That's right. That's right. And that's one of the things that escapes people is that they're like, oh, it's they're not going to accept it. What do you mean they're not going to accept it? Yes, they are. They may make you wait because the person that is the everyday paper pusher does not understand these esoteric principles behind the black magic that is white and black paper. Like they don't get it. And that's fine. It's not really for them. They're just, uh, you're the agent. So I give this to you, you accept it, and then you bring it to the person that has to deal with it. There again, we've seen the so-called adult infantilized. I don't have any authority over this family I've just created. They won't let me do. It's the same idea, but guys, we're at the top of the hour. So we've got a wrap and we're going to prep up to come back for hour two. And we're going to look at the other end of what it means to be a living man or a living woman in this realm. You will be born and you will die. Them's the facts. That is natural law. As far as I know, there's no way around it. And I think some people might argue on the death side that it doesn't have to happen the same way all the time. But for my part, I've only read about it. So that brings episode 435 to a close. This is hour one. Members are welcome to join us for hour two, which again, will cover the idea of going through death's doors at crow777radio.com. That's C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. And with that, I'd like to wish every set of ears out there in the world a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. It is my firm point of view that what we are doing now is we've been cornered into choosing what we will be. The decisions, the things we do are now determining in a big way the path that we will later tread. Who knows? Maybe that goes beyond death. I wish I was qualified to know more than I do. But there it is, man. Cheers.
enemies of knowing. <laughs>